1: Pete Wright, and I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Train spotting is over. One thousand years from now, there will be no guys and no girls, just wankers. What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. Eh? Uh, nice in luggage Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. When's the last time you saw Train Spotting?
0: It has been a very long time. Um, it probably was in the late nineties, right? You know, by the time it had been released out on physical media. I, I'm sure I had rented it at some point, but not since then. And then I never, I never bothered seeing the sequel because it was one of those legacy sequels that I just kind of like, huh, that's an interesting one to
1: make a sequel to. And then I never bothered. That's interesting to me, especially as someone who is also in the bag for Danny Boyle. That that is a never bothered movie.
0: Well, yeah, Danny Boyle, I generally enjoy. I'm trying to think If there's much of his, I mean, I haven't seen everything of his. I think I skipped, uh, let's see, Shallow Grave was his first. And then I think I pretty much saw everything until, I actually don't think I've seen anything since 127 Hours, actually. Oh, no, I saw, I, I take it back. I saw yesterday, but everything between 127 Hours and yesterday, I have not. That's fascinating. So you didn't see Steve Jobs? Nope. Okay. Didn't see Trance. Didn't see uh, T2 train spotting. Fascinating. Uh, Didn't see the
1: TV stuff that he's done. I haven't seen any of his TV stuff. I've I've seen all of the movies. Since I'm trying to think if there's a movie I haven't seen. I don't think I saw Millions. I don't even remember what that one was about. It's about the kids who find the bag of money that some
0: bank robbers threw off a train. And they it they think that it's this gift from God. This kid like believes in angels. It's a really kind of a cute, a
1: little more of a family film that Danny Boyle did. Um, I okay. quite enjoy it. I definitely haven't seen it. I, I'll put it on the list. I, I because I've seen almost everything else, and so I I um, I feel like I have a sense of what I like about Danny Boyle. And and revisiting this movie, uh, I actually. I really enjoyed coming back to this movie, especially because I like you. I mean, it, it's been a little while, um, some years since I watched it. And, um, uh, I, I just, I feel like this is one of those movies that I like more each time. It's aging well for me. And I'm curious, uh, why that is. Maybe it's the nostalgia of it, of the period. Maybe it's the, it's the pace. Maybe it's the, I just think that as a drug movie, it's, it's, um, it's less uncomfortable than other drug movies even that we've talked about. And I'm curious why that is, because it's not like it has a a shortage of uncomfortable sequences, but there's something about it that makes this movie weirdly um, (laughs) fun. And so I'm eager to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, it should be a fun one to talk about. Well, when this movie was released, it should not come as a surprise to anybody. It was rated R for... Uh, graphic heroin use and resulting depravity, strong language, sex, nudity, and some violence, per the MPAA. Graphic heroin use and resulting depravity.
1: Outstanding. <laughs> Big questions, Andy. Uh, let's talk about resulting depravity and toilets. Can we open with that sequence? Oh man, oh man, <laughs> that's tough. There is literally a a, a triggered uh, a, a baby, a dead baby in this movie, and somehow Danny Boyle makes the toilet more uncomfortable for me. <laughs> it's uh, you know, toilets
0: can be. To I mean, I, I had fun shooting a toilet scene for a short film I made, and it, it's very fun to do those in, interior shots from a toilet as you see people, like, mucking around in them. And this is—it's just—I mean, the whole bathroom— it starts off with just the entire bathroom being disgusting and you know it's just not going to go any better from there and once once like, like i love how danny boyle even sets that up where he walks into the bathroom and you've got the the text that comes up on screen cuz it says i don't know bathroom or toilet and then it says worst you know the the text pops up so that it makes the the phrase around the word toilet like worst toilet in london or something like that and it's just a really, it's a fun way to play with kind of the the disgustingness of what we're about to see, but also showing us that we're going to be really playful in how we put all of this together in showing this to you. And yeah, that, that scene is, it's pretty horrifying. It's pretty horrifying, especially once, once he
1: climbs in. Oh, yeah, he keeps going. Well, it's funny the way when you you use the word playful, and I really connect with that, because there's this whole idea of that. It's it's super disgusting. And you could shoot it disgustingly. But the way he shoots it, like there's that opening shot of the toilet where he when the camera's on the ground, like looking up, and the close up of the filth on the ground in the foreground, and then him standing tall above it, like all of the uh, of the, you know, up angle shots are are they're, they are, they're weirdly playful in a super disgusting environment. But that makes it, I think, easier to, uh, easier to watch. And it's really disgusting. Like there's that moment where it's super disgusting and he's reaching in to the toilet. And then, uh, then he goes into the toilet and then it becomes playful again. It becomes fantastical. It becomes, uh, we're in full, like, a crazed overdose or, or, uh, I, what do you call it when you, Really, really want the drugs i don 't know i don 't have it right now, anyway, so he really, really wants the drugs, and he wants them so bad that he 's hallucinating uh, in in some way, shape or form, and part of it is is you know he's this is these this depicts the lengths to which he will go to actually retrieve the drugs uh, and it's it 's awful well, that 's particularly funny because it 's not
0: even. Like the heroin that he's trying to get in the particular right. scene, right? It's those suppositories that are designed to help him potentially break his habit. Like this is one of those times where he's trying to get off the stuff, and so he gets these suppositories <laughs> for the slow, slow release. But then is you know horrified at the fact that he just crapped him out, and uh, yeah, it. We have to
1: go through that whole thing. It's it's um it's pretty gross. So to the point of this playfulness and the disgust kind of horror of the movie do you think that makes it less impactful the journey that he's going through to quit like is that what we're supposed to get out of it that it's that it, this is more of a comedy than uh than a, a drug like rehabilitation story uh no i i i think that that
0: tone isn't necessarily connected to the drug side of the story so much as the youth side of the story. Like, I feel like it's the energy that they have as people that they are, um, they have this, um, you know, this, um, attitude that I think is really clearly stated in kind of the, the opening and closing monologues that Ewan McGregor has, you know, like we get that great sense of, just the tone that they're giving to us as far as like this this type of person with this uh attitude where they just don't care about all of the stuff that everyone else seems to care about and and it's it's a very different vibe that they're carrying and so i think that that playfulness that we're seeing so often in the film is really kind of giving us their sense like the way that they're seeing the world and i think when we have those moments then when he wakes up from one of his um you know heroin trips to the woman screaming and it turns out that the baby's dead because everyone was uh passed out for days and no one had any clue that she had that the baby had died and like those sorts of horrific moments i think end up packing more of a punch and then and something else like watching tommy go down his very dark path that he ends up taking after after Lizzie breaks up with him like we see these moments and I feel like the seriousness of those moments is I, I think it's a it's a nice counterpoint to that playful jovial sense that we get through kind of those other parts of the film
1: yeah i I actually I can see that that and and to that same end this isn't as much I think a drug movie, as it is to your point, that rebellious youth movie, that this is a movie about their ideology that includes reckless use of substances and enough disregard for convention that it leads to them ignorant of taking care of a child that shouldn't have been in their lives in the first place. Yeah, Uh, apparently the book i haven't read the book but it's based on the book uh, of the same name and uh, apparently there are uh, you know a thousand characters in the book and a lot of them had to be cut to make this movie uh, of an adequate length and who we are left with uh, are um, let's see we've got uh renton uh mark renton rent boy spud uh daniel murphy simon sick boy williamson and Francis Franco Begbie, and you mentioned Thomas Tommy McKenzie, um, at, at one point Renton goes out and, and when he quits heroin for a little bit, he realizes his libido is back and he meets up with Kelly McDonald, playing Diane Colston, who is underage. But his libido is such in the dark club that he doesn't notice that and ends up having sex with her. So uh, what do you think of our, our principal hooligans?
0: It's I mean it's a good cast. It gives us a nice uh tone for that playful vibe that we need to have, you know, to kind of get this sense of uh, just, just kind of the variety of personalities that we have, you know, and I I I think that it's it, you know, getting a sense of each of these characters and how they kind of fit in with, with it's it's more about kind of the friendship that they have and and kind of this relationship it within the group and how how Francis doesn't really fit in as one of the people who uses the drugs. In fact, he looks down on all of them for you know using drugs, and he's just a a, dr- a very heavy drinker and a very violent man. And so there is that element that he kind of fits in in a different sort of way. Whereas you know, Sick Boy, Spud, and Rents—they all kind of—they're um, more in in tune with kind of the the drugs and kind of always shooting up and everything. But it's—I I don't know—I found it to be an interesting uh, swath of personalities that we have with this group, and uh, and cast really well like all of these faces i i enjoy on screen and some of them have had more successful careers than others they've all had a variety of careers since then though and i always enjoy seeing them when i do see them on screen and i always think about this movie as like the first
1: place that i saw uh, quite a number of them like for example kevin McKidd, who uh is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he plays Tommy, who finds his way to drugs. I was really surprised to see him in this movie because he has since gone on to 327 episodes of Grey's Anatomy. He's a principal character, Doctor Owen Hunt on Grey's Anatomy. Talk about a career that is made up of, you know, a massive show. After this movie, he's he he has you know a reasonable career of credits other than that. But that is certainly the thing that he's been doing since 2008. Um, Weird. Just very crazy to, to hear him in this, um, <laughs> or to see him in this movie. Yeah, But I really like him. And I think his journey is the interesting, is, is a really interesting one because he's, you know, we get to watch him fall as kind of ancillary character. We get to watch him uh, fall into uh, the horrors that all these other guys we meet in the middle of and uh um, so i i like the way the way we he discovers um you know that dark side of himself it's i mean it's a, it's a sad journey to go
0: down and it's an interesting In one way. because it really is put into motion because of the fact that uh rents steals his uh his it, it basically it was a tape of of him and lizzie of tommy and lizzie having sex and rents you know, took it so that he could watch it and never gives it back, never admits anything about it. It's just one of these things that happens. And probably, I I don't know if it's he intentionally never gives it back or if it's really just a thing where it's just like he doesn't even view it as a thing. And probably in all of his drug induced haste that he's in for so much of the movie that he's just completely, he's probably completely forgotten that, you know, that he was largely one of the reasons behind all of that.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, and, and yeah, I don't think that he ever made a connection. I let that, that that's my read on it anyway, that he never actually got to make that connection because of he was so lost in himself. And I think that's one of the interesting sort of worldviews of the film is that every one of these characters are so lost in themselves um, that even though they hang around each other as a group, they aren't really a group and every one of their little actions, right, leads to the one big action at the end of the movie, which is uh, obviously Ewan McGregor's character, Renton, uh, walking away with the money. Now, it it's a little bit of um, I, I don't know, it's it. Maybe it shows a little bit of heart in his character that he gives a little bit back to um, Spud's. But, um, and so, you know, it's not uh he, he's not being overly gracious he's giving a, a small stack of money out of the the overall haul but um uh, but i do think it's it's interesting that we see that i wonder how much of that um you know I, I always walk away from this movie thinking why what is his his general motivation uh to do that because they're clearly not a a cohesive unit is it pity is it his inner act of grace kind of rearing its head is it uh set up for Twenty years later, uh, sequel. Uh, you know what is it that that motivates him to do that? I
0: mean, I felt there was this in the voiceover when he's talking about him. He's just like, you know, Spuds. I he. I mean, he says yeah, I felt bad for Spuds because he never had anybody, and uh, he was the one who was kind of um, left, um, you know, by the wayside. He didn't feel bad for Sick Boy because he said Sick Boy would have done it if he had thought of it first, and obviously he didn't feel bad for Francis because. Uh, you know, he's a little bit of a, uh, a crazy man who probably a hothead is anyway. better yeah. getting locked up. And so I, I think that he felt a little bad that he was leaving Spuzz there, especially because as he was leaving, you know, he sees that Spuzz is awake and uh, but is too afraid to go with him. And I, I think that there was that connection that the two of them had. So I can see why he would feel uh, like he wanted to kind of give back to him a little bit there. A little bit, yeah. Just a
1: sniff, so to speak. Just, yeah, just just 2,000. So, Ewan McGregor, then, our principal, Renton, we f- we're we following, essentially following Renton. Yeah, I mean,
0: he pretty much is the the narrator of our story. We hear him at the start and finish as he's kind of talking us through this whole Choose Life um, Evolving monologue that we get, uh, you know, from the start to the end of the finish, which, uh, I enjoy quite a bit. I enjoy the way that that monologue feels and the way that, that he uh, is giving it to us and just the way that it sets us up for the story and him and gives us a sense of what we're, what we're in for with this film and who these characters are, who this group of characters are going to be. And, you know, coming into this, I don't think i had seen ewan mcgregor in anything before would i have seen him in uh anything before this um i i saw shallow grave after this so and probably because of this and because of how much i enjoyed this film um but no i hadn't seen anything else that he had done until um a, a year later night watch life less ordinary and just kind of moving on from there Uh, So, yeah, it's interesting to kind of look at his filmography and realize that, you know, as much as I love this uh, actor, it really is this film that kind of kicked that into such high gear for me.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I I had completely forgotten about Nightwatch until you said it. But you're right. That's what would have gotten it. And then, of course, Life Less Ordinary, which had um, it it had one of those uh, soundtracks that stuck with me far more than the than the movie yeah and another
0: and a return to Danny Boyle, and like there was that there was definitely that sense of draw to it because of that um it, yeah but i yeah, I didn't care for that movie that much either, although it is one that I'm curious to revisit because I remember a lot of specific instances with that film that stand out, and so um i am i'm I'm curious about it,
1: yeah for sure and it it's not very long after that that he becomes uh obi wan Kenobi nineteen ninety nine and uh from there, you know, he is one of those notable stars, uh, not not a character actor so much as just a notable. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi playing other things. And and that's how my family refers to him. My kids growing up, he was, oh, my gosh, we watched Moulin Rouge. Is that Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yes, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's right. That's right, right. how he became known. Uh, but, uh, of course, he's got an extraordinary catalog. and And some of we've done some other. Uh, movies of his, we've uh, done uh, Black Hawk Down. Didn't we yep. do Black Hawk Down? Did, yeah, we, did we did do Black, Black Hawk, Hawk Down? Now. It's a long long time ago. um Big Fish, of course. Yep. That for me is I think uh, that's pq and McGregor is Big Fish, don't you think? I mean, it's his biggest, most bombastic performance. Never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, other, do you have any other like favorite non-Star Wars bits of of McGregor? Angels and Demons, I think, was high on your list. Yeah,
0: you know, not not really. I love. I actually thought he did a great job in a challenging film, Doctor Sleep. You know, and and having to play young Danny Torrance all grown up. You know, I thought he conveyed that really well as this kid who's kind of fallen into the traps, the alcohol traps of his father and becoming an alcoholic and, and dealing with that. I really enjoyed him in that film a lot. Um, but I mean, you know, he's one of those people who I really enjoy in everything I see of his. I don't necessarily always enjoy the films, but I always enjoy him. Like I, just, I feel like he uh, brings a lot to the screen. And um, yeah, he's one of those people who, you know, is having a career because he is so good at doing this sort of stuff,
1: for sure. So, Ewan Bremner, Bremner, yeah, Bremner. Uh, we talk about a guy who's that one of those faces, <laughs> and for me, that's Ewan Bremner. He's first of all, he's in like everything. Uh, feels like like he's just in everything, and. Such a strange, a a strange coincidence. I, we just turned on my kids had never seen the rundown. And so we turned on the rundown the other night. So good. And there he is, the pilot in the rundown. I had totally forgotten he was in that movie right on the heels of watching this. What a great, what a great experience it is watching this guy perform. Such a quirky actor.
0: He is, and that's—I I always enjoy that about him—is that he finds these, uh, you know, he, rarely lead roles, but always just fun, quirky bit parts to, um, to do fun stuff with, um, you know, like uh, snatch we've talked about. He's fun in that. Black Hawk Down, actually, with Ewan Mc, uh, Ewan McGregor, he was in that. All the way up through uh, more recently, like Wonder Woman, he was in that, and uh, then jumping over to uh, Kelly Reichardt's film First Cow. So I mean, he's he's all over the place in a variety of interesting roles, and and he's one of those people that is a that guy. Like he's got that great face, and he pops up in
1: these little roles, and I'm just I'm always excited to see him show up. In this movie, I, I should, should add you haven't watched Our Flags Mean Our Flag Means Death yet, right? Because it's a small screen thing. No, nope. it's he's in it. It's very funny. I I like it, but I sort of feel like I'm an island that I actually remember it. Like there are people who watched it, enjoyed it, and then forgot that it existed. So, uh, uh, I think it's very funny. Um, he in this movie uh, is Spud, and is the brunt of a lot of stuff. In this movie and some more body grotesqueries.
0: Yeah. And that's where my brain always goes to with him is that whole opening bit where he um, unloads in the bed at his girlfriend's house. And like just the horror (laughs) of that scene. It's so bad, um, but it makes me laugh every time. And, I, again this this goes to the the tone that this film is setting like it's this very playful tone we have this group of heroin addicts and it's you know like they're on again off again attempts at trying to kind of quit the stuff and this is again just like uh rents who's trying to quit we have uh spuds also trying to quit the stuff and it uh, it gives them the runs as everything unloads and he just uh yeah it's just a it's a Terrible, terrible scene that
1: um, I mean, really makes you cringe and laugh in all the best ways. You are you are really delicate in the way you're talking about it. I just want to applaud you for that. <laughs> the way you're you keep using the word unload, and it's, it's all all an effort to dance around the scatological horrors of what happened at the breakfast table with the yeah. sheets and the ex- explosive scatological horror yeah. and the parents. Right, it's right, bad. Right. If you haven't seen the movie, it's pretty gross. Be prepared. Yeah. Be prepared. If if the toilet
0: scene, if watching Ewan McGregor fish his hands in a clogged toilet that doesn't flush, trying to find <laughs> these pills, isn't bad enough, then just yeah, wait. You're
1: g- <laughs> if it is bad enough, you're going to be fine.
0: Yeah. You're
1: going to be fine getting through this. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is really funny. And the embarrassment, the just sort of cultural embarrassment. But I think the funniest part is that the way the parents welcome him to breakfast. Right. Like there is that. And it's the, the same thing happens to to Renton. Right. Like, the, yeah, when he comes to Diane's parents. Right. He comes to Diane's parents. And he's like, so, you know, are you the flatmates? No, we're the <laughs> flatmates. No, um, that that was I, I think there's that sort of. I, I don't I, I'm trying to to work around in my head what it would take for me as a parent to see a, a guy come in who's been in my daughter's bedroom and welcome him to breakfast what would it take as a dad to do that i i guess it
0: plays in a way where obviously he's uh she tells him you're not allowed to stay in my room and so he ends up sleeping on kind of like a sofa in the hall mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i guess like if as a parent if a friend if i wake up and there's a strange boy sleeping on my couch I would be thrown a little bit, but at least I would be knowing. Well, he didn't wake up in bed with my daughter, so Mm-mm. I guess I guess you have to write it off as accepting yet naive as far as or or, or who knows maybe they're aware. I just don't know, but it is interesting that they aren't really surprised by him, especially because he looks older than her. Like if it was, if it was a boy older, (laughs) if it was a boy who looked like a, you know, a teenager who was in school with her, I suppose I'd still be concerned, but I wouldn't be as concerned if I, if it was a guy who looked like he was in his twenties, waking up next to, or or in my house. Like it's, it's just, it's a strange situation that they, that they, that they, Craft into the film as far as the parents being so accepting. I mean, I get it more with uh, with Spud and his girlfriend. I mean, I, I don't know what sort of relationship. Um, like his we parents... assume they
1: have a they yeah. uh, they know each other,
0: right? And yeah. we assume that his that her parents have kind of come to terms with the fact that there's a relationship going on in their house. And and who knows? It, I you know I don't I don't know the whole backstory of their relationship. But yeah, when it comes to Diane, it is. A little peculiar.
1: I, I think in terms of the filmmaking, like the tone, it feels to me like it is a just another bit of the surrealism in the movie. Like we go into the toilet and they do all the disgusting body stuff and the drug stuff, and 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 this is like just that cultural surrealism, like where it that fits to me right in line with the tone of the movie, like that breezy, playful bit is also like culture horror for, you know, parents, right, but saying just kind of you know, speaking broadly. And and I, it fits for me with the tone of the movie and I like it a lot. Like it's it's just the right level of of discomfort. Johnny Lee Miller was fun? Yeah, Johnny Lee
0: Miller is another face that I enjoy seeing, although I feel like of the faces he's one that I see a lot less than the others. Yeah. Like what stands out as a Johnny Lee Miller film? Like do you think of is there anything and I know Hacker. he had a he had that that TV it, hackers. hackers. Okay, sure. Uh, which was before this though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which was so weird, right? And that I feel like Johnny Lee Mil- Miller sort of disappeared and yet I know he he was in uh that show with um was that wasn't that Lucy Lou Sherlock Holmes show? For a long that was long running. Uh what was that called? Elementary. It was called Elementary, um oh, okay. it was a CBS yeah. show, 154 episodes. Johnny Lee Miller was um Sherlock Holmes and Lucy Liu was Dr. Joan Watson. Got you. And I never watched a single episode of it. Um I I feel like he is like his credits uh, are kind of a mystery to me.
0: Yeah, I feel like when it comes to film, I think that he's in a lot of stuff as kind of a uh, bit player kind of like you and Bremner I just don't I don't remember seeing uh Johnny Lee Miller
1: at as as much I guess you know I I don't know I I It's it's funny like the movies I've seen movies that he's in it like Aeon Flux <laughs> he's Yeah Aeon right. Flux I don't I don't recall much of that movie um it didn't it didn't stick
0: yeah, so I feel like he's just one of those faces that didn't last for me as long as some of the others. But, I, I you know, I, I do still enjoy him. And, like, same with Robert Carlyle, who I've always enjoyed. And probably this was where I first uh, remember seeing—no, actually, Priest. I saw Priest a few years before this. And then this, the Full Monty, Ravenous, which is possibly one of my favorite films that he's in. And then, of course, he's he jumps into the James Bond world. Uh, with the world is not enough. And, and so, you know, there are a lot of things that he did. And of course, 28 weeks later. And um so I, again, another actor who's done a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I do really enjoy him as well. But uh, yeah, again, I just don't feel like I'm seeing him quite as much these days.
1: Yeah, I don't think I am either, although he did have such an extended run. He had an extended run on uh, Stargate Universe. I loved him in Stargate Universe and that show. That was, I, I think, peak Stargate for me. So Stargate nerds, that's that's where I stand. It's it's that and then the rest. Um, really disappointing that that was canceled. And then he had a long role as uh, a long run in Once Upon a Time. The uh, oh, yes, I forgot about ABC that. Disney. thing. Right. He was yep. Rumpelstiltskin for, you know. A long time uh, on that show and um, and was a an interesting character. I mean, he made some interesting choices. I I think he is really, really, really good as a performer. And um, I, I, he's charismatic. He has an interesting look to him. And as Begbie, he is perfectly crazy to me that final sequence like any of his eruptions of uh, into like violence picking fights like they're they're surprising and believable at the same time and i think that's uh um that's a, a real gift of craft i think he's great well and i think it speaks
0: to what an interesting performer he is when you watch something like this and then the very next year the full monty and you see how different he is uh, between the two characters and the character types and I, I feel like there's, like, one is, like, I would never, ever want to run into Begbie in a bar. Like, he is the most terrifying figure who, at the snap of a hat, could or snap, snap of fingers, could, the drop of a hat. What is the expression
1: that I'm trying to say? <laughs> I think you got them all. <laughs> I think you got all the ones that are related in there. Snap your dropping hat with your snap fingers. Snap your dropping hat,
0: yes. He'll, like, you know, beat you up you know smash a bottle into your neck you know whatever and it's it's terrifying and then the full monty it's like he's just a down on his luck guy like husband and he's just you know a totally normal person and is so likable in that film and so it's interesting seeing um him kind of play those two films or those two characters back to back because it does really give a sense as to uh, what he's able to accomplish as an actor
1: yeah yeah. I, uh, so if you're a member, uh, the next slash membership, you can join for our live streams. And Brian is in the live stream uh, chat room and he says this, which I want to make sure I note because, uh, apparently, uh, says Brian, he played Renton before in a stage adaptation of Train Spotting. Uh, and when Boyle wanted him to be Begbie, Carlisle thought he wasn't bruising enough to play Begbie. And Boyle said, Small psychos play on screen. Uh, I, <laughs> I get it, and he nails it. I mean, he absolutely uh, m- nails it for me. He's perfect in this role. Yeah, he really is great. Yeah, what do you think of uh, Kelly McDonald? This is where
0: we get to meet her in film. This was her debut performance.
1: Yes, well, I adore Kelly McDonald. I think she's wonderful, and um, I, you know, we've we've talked about her in No Country for Old Men. Um, what else have we talked about other things? that she's done i don't know she's she's one of those
0: people who's in a lot of things but i don't know how much of it we have talked about you know she pops up in things like she's in gosford park and finding neverland and the nanny mcphee films um but i don't know if we have really had a chance to chat about anything that she's done other than uh specifically this so
1: Yeah, I I don't I I think you're right. I think this was um, we have not talked about her much, but I I think she's wonderful. She has gone on and done a a number of fantastic uh, performances. I have not seen, uh, I would say, nearly enough of them, but uh, I really enjoy what she is on screen here. And I think she just like talk about a precocious young character who just dominates. You know, in her relationship with these guys and and puts herself in places that, you know, you have to be a certain bit of bravery and uh, to go out and find joy the way she finds joy. And I I find her really compelling to watch. Um, And, um, you know, as a as a character that's in orbit of Renton, um, I think she really she plays for me. Yeah, I, I
0: definitely enjoy her. And did you what did you think of the Black Mirror episode that she was in? Did you like that one?
1: Yeah, which one was that?
0: Um It's the one with the little um uh like the drone like the drone bees that are designed to like, you know, drone pollinate and everything, but some somebody's using them to kill people. Remember that one?
1: I don't remember that one. I have to be honest, I haven't seen a hundred percent of the Black Mirror episodes. I feel like I skipped around because people told me, Oh, you have to go watch this one. So I would go watch one and then I would I have some blanks I need to fill in. Gotcha. Did you, was it a good one? Like, is she, do you remember it? I don't remember her specifically, but I remember liking the
0: episode quite a bit. It was in a world where bees are dying. They come up with these little drones that do the job of bees, but then somebody taps into the programming for them and then starts using them to kill people. And it's just, it's kind of terrifying because, you know, all these little drone robot bees suddenly start like, you know crawling through cracks in under your window and break in and, and they basically kill you it's uh, i don't know i found it to be a pretty effective episode
1: they're all run by chat gbt and sydney are you are you keeping up with all that <laughs> oof oh dear rough ai is rough right now andy mm-hmm. i don't care for it anyhow uh she was also the voice of merida and that was that was a connection i made in our pre-show this morning i had not made that connection before that it was Kelly McDonald and she is just delightful, yeah, absolutely uh, what a wonderful voice actor you know are there any other particular characters you want to talk about? Not, not characters
0: um I just you know I think when talking about Danny Boyle though and the style that he he comes to with a film i I find him to be a a director who brings a lot of exciting energy to his films and I think that holds true. Again, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the episode. Like, but when you watch the films that he does early in his career, I feel like that energy really carries through really strongly, regardless of the film. Like Shallow Grave, certainly. A Life Less Ordinary, absolutely. The Beach still has that 28 Days Later. Like he did something that felt fresh for the zombie films. Millions felt fresh for a, a family film. Sunshine, we've talked about on the show before. Slumdog Millionaire, absolutely. Even 127 Hours, like building the energy into a film where a person is trapped in one spot for 127 hours It's in the title. So I think that he is always... Bringing an exciting energy to the stories that I suppose you could say is it's kind of a Danny Boyle style. I mean, is he a director where you'd say like it, it's boilish, boiling? What would like? Do you feel like there is a there is a definitive
1: Boyle style that we're getting out of all of these? I think so. I have a hard time like, and I, probably because I uh, I don't know. I feel like I've seen enough of Danny Boyle that I feel like I see the patterns. But the the one that stands out to me is a movie that I I might have otherwise guessed differently would have been Steve Jobs. Going into Steve Jobs, I thought, how could Danny Boyle possibly put a spin on a movie like this? And ended up uh, absolutely doing it. I hated the movie for reasons not related to the filmmaking. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I felt like he was able to bring... The, uh, what a weird structure to choose. Like, this whole movie is going to be told through... Three major events, um, and that's it. Like just on the days, and it it felt like a very strange choice to make. It, and yet, I feel like it. the The movie was still energetic, well paced, um, and a dizzying joy to watch. Even though I had issues with it, so I'm I'm right with you uh, all the way through yesterday. Like I found yesterday a joyous celebration of. And a wonderful way to approach the Beatles that gets exactly that kind of fantastical, like fast motion, fast pace exuberance for a family movie that feels so quintessentially Danny Boyle. Like it's it's the same energy like you could watch. I I feel like I could watch Yesterday and Sunshine side by side and and be able to pick them as Danny Boyle movies like they just. Uh, he he's great. He's really great.
0: What is it that defines the style? Is it like camera movement and pacing and editing? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of that,
1: for sure, in there. Well, how would you characterize? Like, I want to go to Slumdog Millionaire. I was gonna say maybe we should specifically talk about Train Spotting. <laughs> well, I want to talk about Train Spotting, but I want to talk about Slumdog Millionaire because that was my. I think that was the first movie that I watched, knowing that I was watching it for the filmmaking of it because I didn't want to I wasn't interested in watching it and you told me you have to go watch this movie you're going to love this this is one of those legendary there are a couple of them one of the legendary movies that you told me you have to go watch this movie stop being an idiot and I did and I loved it <laughs> right and I feel like it's this it, it it has very much the same craft around capturing a slice of life in a particular place and time and all of these movies that do that, maybe even Steve Jobs to its greatest extent, capture a slice of life in a particular place in time that gives me more of a sense of living in the eyes and minds of these characters. Uh, and I think he just has a real gift of doing that with camera. And I think train spotting is exactly that. Like it's giving me a slice of life, whether I'm sitting in the, with uh, Renton and Spud and Uh, On the floor of their apartment with the baby crawling around, you know, or running through the streets or whatever. Like, I feel like I'm an exhibition in the middle of their slice of life. That's kind of how I think about Boyle.
0: He carries a very much an energy. And I think he is one of those directors who knows how to tap into the tone he is setting with his soundtrack and i feel like he finds that energy like this the sound we haven't talked about the soundtrack to this film but i mean it was it was one of those both the the original soundtrack and then you know the second because it was one of those movies that has so much music that they release a second soundtrack with even more music from train spotting but like all of the songs they tap into the way that he's building the scenes in such a strong way and in creating that energy and i think that is a lot of what is happening here and whether it's a song or score or just i mean even without i feel like he is still bringing that energy into it and um i think that that makes it very exciting to just kind of
1: to see what he's doing with it you know for sure and and you're you're right that that he is a guy who directs to music. It feels like i, I kind of wonder how he approaches it do you I mean, have you ever read anything on how Danny Boyle approaches music in his movies it, it feels so much like an Edgar Wright kind of approach, but I've never read anything on his his take I haven't, and I didn't um listen to didn't have a
0: chance to listen to the commentary on this to hear if he talks about that specifically, but I would think that there is something. Uh, that certainly plays into it. Even Again, even if it's not the music, it's just he is creating music with the visuals, the editing, the pace, the movement, like the way that he's cutting. I remember, I mean, going back to Slumdog Millionaire, just the way that he chose to place the subtitles where it's not just text on the bottom of the screen, but it's like next to characters and it's moving and stuff. Like, it's just like, it made it so much more interesting and captured the tone of those kids who were, you know, we were watching them, um, you know, through their lives. I I think that there is something that he is doing that infuses uh, his films with a special energy that um, that he's capturing.
1: I I like it because it feels like transcendent filmmaking. It's not super grounded. It's not, it, it lets me still exist in fantasy, even if he is presenting hard subject matter. Like heroin use, and you know the the price one pays dealing with addiction. Yet the film still lives, you know, so soundly in fantasy. Right, right, right. Well, and I actually think to that point, like the film exists so heavily in fantasy for most of it that when it comes to the the big moments, the big moments like discovering the baby in the in the crib, that is uh, that's one of the grounded moments, right. But then the reaction to it when he's coming down, his parents lock him in his bedroom and um, he has to revisit it and see all of the stuff and feel all the pain and the the mechanical baby sliding, <laughs> crawling on the ceiling. Like all of those experiences take us right back into fantasy. And it's like, oh, my God, what am I seeing here? Even though I was just in a moment of silence with this dead baby and discovering it along with them and watching them, the only way they knew how to react was to go get high some more. And um I found that I found that really yeah, I found that that empowering uh, powerful. And
0: I mean in the scene when he is going through his uh you know the forced uh you know cutting uh going clean that his parents you know they lock him up uh, like the way that that whole thing is shot like that final that final drug trip. Well, not, I guess not the final uh, one, but the one that he has when he's supposed to be going clean and the way that he shoots up and literally like falls into the floor. Like he sinks down into the floor and we're watching from his perspective as mother superior drag, drags him out. Cause you know, he recognizes that uh, he's overdosed and <laughs> drags him out, takes him to a, ca- a taxi uh, to take him to the hospital. And we're seeing the whole thing in this perspective sunk into the floor and we get that all the way until he's in the hospital, and then they kind of snap him out with uh, uh, something to uh, kind of break him out of that that OD where he had been stuck. But then, when he is in his bedroom at his parents' house and he's locked in and stuff like all the stuff going on under the sheets, as far as like you know, he sees that baby and he hides under the sheet, and then suddenly there's there's Francis there talking to him, and uh, and then he looks around the other side and there's. Uh, sick boy down sitting at the end of the bed watching him and talking to him like the, it's like we are in his head. And I just for a book that is uh, kind of depicting this story of these people and drugs and getting out of drugs and crime and everything like I found that Boyle found exciting ways to capture all of this and the youth and the drugs and the the joys and the horrors of all of this in such an exciting way and continues to do that in his projects. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh You know, it's funny. This is just a side note, but I'm looking at his filmography. So there is a film that he made, a short film called Alien Love Triangle. Have you heard of this? No. It's a short film that... It's it's registered as a 2008 film, but he actually made it in 1999 as one of three films that was meant to be a trilogy in a in an anthology film. The other two films, though, mimic which was Guillermo del Toro's uh, horror films with those giant cockroaches, and Imposter, which is uh, based on a Philip K. Dick uh, film that had Gary Sinise, Madeline Stowe. Those two films ended up getting turned into feature films, and his film, Alien Love Triangle, was left as this half-hour short film that never was screened until Mark Kermode actually screened it at this closing of this small theater in Britain, or in the UK, Um, and that was the only time that it was screened, apparently, and so... It's not something that you have any way to watch, but I'm super curious about it now. Kenneth Brana and Courtney Cox, Heather Graham are all in it and um and I don't know, I'm really curious now to see this that I apparently you there's really no way to actually watch it, unfortunately.
1: that's crazy and sad, yeah, yeah um yeah, yeah, that's you know, usually what YouTube. <laughs> comes to our rescue for some of these you know, raise our glass to the to the posters. But um yeah, doesn't look like anything's there. No. Sad but true. Hmm.
0: What do you think of the um you know speaking of Boyle and the look, I mean the, the cinematography and everything with the film, do you like the the tone? Do you feel like uh, you know Brian Tafano is is shooting this film? Do you feel like it's capturing a a sense of this world? Does it feel gritty? Like, what, what does it, what did you get out of that?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's the whole, uh, that, that's the whole thing. Like, I, I go back to the, to the toilet scene, right? It, that's the, the sequence that stands out to me as, as probably emblematic of the rest of the movie, which is just the, the way they choose and the, their, you know, lens choices and lighting choices, uh, you know, to put me in scene, I think are fantastic i i feel like those those choices really put me into their headspace and their experience do you are you a, a Tufano, uh tofano uh this is horrifying this is horrifying <laughs> just made that uh, that one that's good right we really like that one um i he's he has worked with boyle uh before uh, several times he worked with him
0: on uh, right out of the gate with shallow grave and then this and life less ordinary um and um alien love triangle which again was 99 even though it was released in 08 so definitely of the period of things for boyle you know and and i think that he does kind of capture that look for him but i mean this is a a dp who's done a lot of projects so, you know um going back to one of my kind of guilty pleasures from the 80s dreamscape that was it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i loved it so um but yeah i i i think that you know as a dp clearly knows um how to capture interesting images and i mean you know an additional photographer on blade runner you know and so um you know working with ridley scott and and that so i i definitely think that this is a, a a filmmaker who knows how to kind of get capture that sense of this story for the filmmaker yeah sadly just passed away uh last month oh wow yeah
1: It is sad. Timely sadness.
0: Well, what else? Any last thoughts about uh, this
1: one? Okay, here's a reminder from the chat room. Brian, gonna be very upset if we don't talk about the voiceover. Ewan McGregor has the voiceover. I mean, I did...
0: I talked about it a little bit as far as kind of the the open and the close and how it sets us up for the space of this world and these characters.
1: I think it's because I am a noted antagonist for voiceovers. I think we both are. Generally, if they're used well, they're fine. And this is one of those examples of, I think, having them used well. Maybe it's because I just like the accent and I like listening to him talk at me. Um, But uh, generally, I feel like if you remove the voiceover, the movie is very, very different. And maybe harder to follow. I'm not sure if I can picture or, or if I can kind of create an image in my head of what the movie sounds like without without his participation
0: it's definitely there in the book like you get that sense of the voice in the book like i i never i didn't finish the book but i did start it just to kind of get a sense as to the tone of it and you you have that sense of the characters from and the voice from that and i will say in and we didn't really talk about the script john hodge adapted the book and uh you know very smartly decided what to bring in, what to cut out, and how to include this voice to give it the personality that we need. And I think that really taps into also what we were saying about Danny Boyle and kind of the tone that he creates and infuses in his projects. Because, yeah, I think the voiceover is... Uh, is critical in a film like this to put us into the headspace for these characters, especially ones that largely I would say they're hard characters to like, but I think we end up liking them so much because of that uh, personality that we get from the voiceover and we get a sense because otherwise, I mean, rents is very much a, uh, you know, very into himself, very narcissistic, doesn't really seem to care about much. And again, I think that, In so much of it, it's the drugs talking with these characters, and it's great seeing rents clean himself up and go clean. And actually, that we didn't talk about kind of that whole last act of the film either, where he is clean and he is working as a uh, you know a realtor, basically helping people find places to live, and then he is saddled with his past as uh, Francis and Sick Boy decide to basically come crash with him and hang out with him and um, end up kind of dealing with this whole um, this drug deal that they end up getting uh, tied into. And it's it's kind of that return to, you know, just when he thought he's out, he's pulled back in sort of thing. But it works. And I I think that with the voiceover, that really kind of keeps us into a place where we can like this character because he's kind of coming from that place where he's trying to get clean and trying to start a. Trying to start a new life, you know, he's choosing life, as he says.
1: Which, which I think is, I think is great. It does, it is interesting how easily he's sort of pulled back in as these guys just sort of barrel into his life again in this, this third act. And Begbie just moves in and starts bossing him around. And I mean, you know, you put yourself again into this slice of life at his time. Like, how do you say no? How do you say no to Begbie? Yeah. When he just shows up at your house.
0: Yeah, he's a scary one to say no to. And clearly, we see that none of these people can. I mean, that was one of the most horrifying scenes to watch when uh, Begbie flips out on the guy in the bar and, like, you know, slices his neck open with the, the, the glass. And the guy is kind of, like, laying on the floor, presumably dying. And he kind of demands for Rents to bring over a cigarette and the bag of money and then like i mean he, it's almost like you know rents has to then light it for him and give it to him and everything and it's just like wow this is horrifying the way that this character is demanding of their lives in this way it's it was really interesting
1: yeah, the last thing we we haven't really mentioned is just that this sort of subtext of hiv aids in this movie and that's you know that that's sort of the undercurrent and and the mystery of uh, of rent that he is after you know sharing needles for years like he is only released um from the hospital or from his um uh, you know treatment on condition of a negative hiv test and is and is negative but um you know even as those around him are um you know still struggling with with you know hiv aids in in his community and i think that's um that's another interesting sort of piece it's not it's not a huge piece it's not it's
0: there it's something that they're aware of and they like there was that great little bit with the the kind of the hallucinatory game show where his parents are answering questions about hiv and stuff which is kind of interesting but then i think that they also go uh, they play with the expectations of that when tommy ends up dying and it turns out not to be hiv but in fact uh, toxoplasmosis that he got from his kitten that he's not caring for right. and all of the the bacteria and the poop that he ends up dying from which uh, you know it's it's tragic okay yeah no it's it is it is a uh definitely a great film we're gonna talk more about about first here's our credits
1: The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Gefilterfish, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxoffice-mojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. how
0: to do an award season. This is a film that definitely did well for itself, kind of tapping into uh, the zeitgeist of its time. It ended up getting 23 wins with 35 other nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, unfortunately, I you know, it's one of those, it's interesting. I think this is the sort of thing that often will win screenplay but would never win like picture or anything which we saw with Pulp Fiction a few years before Um, however this was uh, it I don't know it just might have not been quite as much the hit it ended up going to Sling Blade Billy Bob Thornton's adaptation of his own short film the other nominees interestingly Kenneth Branagh for Hamlet uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible and Anthony Minghella's The English Patient Uh, how would you slot this run of five films
1: I don't know. I like this one an awful lot, but there's something about that sling blade. What's your I mean, do you uh, do you have a an intuitive sense? Mine would be the English patient. The the adaptation of that
0: book, I just I found um, so strong. And I know it's a film that a lot of people roll their eyes at, but I think the film is incredibly crafted and put together. And I think the adaptation was amazing.
1: I, I, I don't I'm not I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare roll my eyes, Andy. I absolutely would not roll my eyes, but I haven't seen it uh, in many, many years. Like, I don't have a very strong memory of it. And I've seen Sling Blade and now this. And, like, my sense memory of these is stronger just because of recency.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will say, like, all five of those, I think, are strong. Like, I think it's actually um, a great run of adaptations. So... Yeah, for sure. I know some people were... Uh, scoffing at the fact that Brano was nominated for Hamlet because they're just like, didn't he just do the whole thing? But I mean, there was quite a bit of adaptation <laughs> that he still did in that. He just did the whole thing. That's what uh, I know is yeah. uh, quite the joke. Anyway, um, this film did win over at the BAFTAs. It ended up, it ended up winning uh, best screenplay, best adapted screenplay there. And then was also nominated for the Alexander Korda Award for Best British Film, but lost to The Madness of King George, which uh, is a pretty pretty great film. Over at BAFTA Scotland, I didn't know actually um, there was a separate BAFTA Scotland, but uh, Ewan McGregor won Best Actor. Robert Carlyle was nominated, but lost to Ewan McGregor. Uh, Kelly MacDonald was nominated, but lost to Judi Dench for Best Actress in a Film. Uh, For Mrs. Brown, the film won Best Feature Film was nominated for Best Writer, but lost to The Crow Road, which I am not even familiar with. Um, over at the MTV Movie and TV Awards, uh, they're always an interesting one to see. Uh, Ewan McGregor was nominated for Best Breakthrough Performance, but lost to Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill. And at the WGA Awards, John Hodge was again nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay,
1: but lost again to Billy Bob Thornton for Bling Blade. I will say that John Hodge is a is a hell of a writer. You know, he works a lot with Danny Boyle, or I should say Danny Boyle works a lot with him, and he's got The Beach and France and he too, obviously train spotting, a lifeless ordinary. He's he's got a hell of a catalog.
0: I mean it's interesting. You look you look at his films though, and they're almost all Danny Boyle properties, other than a few like The Final Curtain, not familiar with that, The Seeker, The Dark Is Rising the Sweeney, and the Squad, and the Program. I I think that he must have something where it has to be the something if he's going to write it by
1: himself. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes, I'm pretty sure that's it. Currently also doing the Ipcris file. There it is again, see? Yep. Danny Boyle tells him, I'll only take your scripts that don't have the in it. Except for the beach, I'll do that one for you.
1: Oh, (laughs) All right. Uh, how to do at the box office.
0: Well, Boyle's black dramedy cost one point five million pounds, or three point one million dollars to make. That's five point nine million in today's dollars. This movie opened on fifty-seven screens in the west end of London, Scotland, and Ireland February twenty-third, nineteen ninety-six, where it did well opening in fifth place. After playing out of competition at Cannes in May, it opened here in the U.S. on July 19, 1996, opposite The Frighteners, Multiplicity, Kazam, Fled, and The Time to Kill. Clearly a big studio weekend, yet none of them could crack the top four, which were Independence Day, Phenomenon, Courage Under Fire, and The Nutty Professor. This movie opened in 16th place. Miramax did what it could to push the movie out there, eventually expanding it to just over 350 screens, but it never got higher than 10th place at the domestic box office. Still, it did well for itself, earning just over 16.5 million domestically and 55 million internationally for a total gross of 137.4 million in today's dollars. That is a handsome return of 23 times the investment, and it lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 1.4 mil.
1: Oof. Oof. That's nice. Let's not start calculating aphthalm for each episode of this show, because I don't think we're going to come close to 23 times return. Holy cow. <laughs> 23 times. Uh, I loved uh, I love this movie. I love revisiting it. And I'm excited to talk about uh, our our big sequel and just a little bit of preamble.
0: Have you seen it? No, I said earlier, when we are talking about Danny Boyle, this is one I haven't seen. But,
1: I, I mean, this is one you haven't seen, but just even in prep, you haven't watched it yet. You're not I just hiding yet. it for the, the people. I, I have not. I'm really curious your take on it, the the uh, legacy sequel-ness uh, of it. Yeah, it will be an interesting one to talk about.
0: I, I mean, I do really enjoy this film. It's a tough film to watch in some spots, but it is a very fun film. And I'm glad that we're getting this in our list of films that we
1: have discussed. Me too, me too. Feels like a long time coming.
0: Well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie Boyle's 2017 follow up T2 Train Spotting. Stupidest title out there. Weird, stupid title. <laughs> Hello, Mark. So, what have you been up to
1: for 20 years? Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone, somewhere, cares. Missed you, mate. I missed you too, Spud. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently. Do you still take heroin? No. And choose watching history repeat itself.
0: Hello, oh, Franco. Simon,
1: I'm home. Ah! Choose your future. Call the police. What shall I say? Just
0: tell them we're dead.
1: Choose reality TV, slut shaming, revenge porn. Yeah. Choose a zero-hour contract, a two-hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse. And smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then take a deep breath. Oh. an addict so be addicted just be addicted to something else choose the ones you love choose your future choose life Uh, okay, Letterboxd. Andy, I don't think it's going to come as any surprise what we where we end up here. Letterboxd is our favorite social media network for movie lovers. Uh, and, you know, you can pay to upgrade and remove all the ads and support the fantastic Kiwi team. And they're a great partner of us here at The Next Reel. If you want to upgrade your account... If you fall in love with it like we have, and you have your watch lists and your reviews and your film diary all up there, just head to thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. It'll whisk you over to the checkout page with the code NEXTREEL already ap- applied. What does that mean? It means it's shaving off 20% off your upgrade to pro or patron membership. Again, thenextreel.com slash letterboxed. Get that 20% off. Andy, what are you going to do?
0: Yeah, this is a film that I definitely enjoy watching. I... Don't feel like it's something that I I want to put on often. Like, I really enjoy it. I feel like there are other Danny Boyle films that would kind of beat it out as far as, like, my favorite Danny Boyle film. I feel like I'm landing at four and a half
1: and a heart with this one. All right, four and a half and a heart. I'm, I you know, no half stars right. I am five stars and a heart. I really do uh, love this film. I think it is a great example of Boyle's uh, filmmaking and uh, just excited to head into T2 and see how we how we rank that.
0: Yeah, very much so. Well, don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership, and it does work for renewals as well. You can also go to thenextreel.com slash membership, and you can learn about our membership, where you can get access to all of your episodes early. You get uh, some pre-show and post-show conversations sometimes, member bonus episodes. Uh, there's tons of stuff that we offer to our members. In fact, our... February member bonus episode will have gone out before this. We did Slumber Party Massacre, the 2021 um, remake/slash re, uh, sequel to that franchise. And we'll be doing Infernal Affairs 2 and 3 for March and April this year. So lots of great conversations out there. Again, the nextreel.com slash membership if you're interested in learning more. So, what did you think about train spotting? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community. Where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: <laughs> letterboxd give it, Andrew.
0: As the letterboxed, always do it.
1: Oh man, Letterboxd. There are a lot of people who have feelings about this movie on Letterboxd. I don't know if you noticed this. Oh yes. It, this is one of those that does bring out the, it does bring out some of the, the comedy and some of the, uh, some of the reviewers. This is some, some of Letterboxd's good work is presented here. This is why Letterbox exists. I think. Indeed. Would you agree? Oh yes. Where, do you, do you, are you going to do your long one or do you have a backup? Well, I don't want to read it again. You're just going to cut that in? I can either cut it in or I'll
0: just read my short one. I don't know. What do you think? Are you doing uh, one that I'll have to bleep? Because if, if not, then I'll just
1: read my short no, one. No, apparently I'm not going to do one that you have to bleep. We've okay, already, I'll just, we've, we've already I will save.
0: I will save my longer one, which is by Steve okay. G, for members to listen to at the end of this episode.
1: There you go. Outstanding. That's the way but. I do uh, it. But
0: otherwise, I'm going to do Karsten's four star review that says, "You know how you can smell certain movies? Yeah, this one smells <laughs> like cigarettes and feces." <laughs> <laughs> it does.
1: I have I have a really thoughtful five star from Sophie who says, "Wow, Train Spotting has really changed my life. It's made me decide I'm never going to do heroin. <laughs> me, a bitch who was never going to do heroin anyway." <laughs> 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 layers there are layers that's, to that that you have to listen to it a few times did you, you see that ewan
0: mcgregor actually was like debating with himself like should i try heroin just for this part like he was trying to make this <laughs> yes. decision and then he's just yes. like Meh, no that's nah, all right. better not <laughs> i don't think i don't think that's a good idea yeah probably probably the smart choice there <laughs>
1: <laughs> god so method so method oh thanks letterboxd
0: Slash Audible.
1: It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn all on Audible. Our train spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 train spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on audible
1: producing this podcast is a lot of fun but takes a lot of time we've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content
0: plus they just jam those things in wherever they see fit we listened to you when you said you didn't like them so now we're directly appealing to you our dear listener please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.